everybody, this is Kevin Dixon, and a big welcome to a talk on the buyer side. I'm your host, and I'm also the founder of Popstep, a sales platform that aligns the selling with the buying. We're a sales podcast with a difference because this is all about the buyers. And in today's complex markets, it's their perspectives that really matter. We'll be having buyer side chats with decision makers and industry experts to understand more about buying challenges, what salespeople do well, what they need to improve on, and how they can help in the buying process. Join us as we explore the concept of facilitation and collaboration with B2B buyers. Joe, welcome to Talk on the Buy Side. Hi, Kevin. Thanks very much for having me as a guest. Fabulous. So let's start off with, because you're a buyer, um, and I use that term in, in, in a sort of generic way, tell everyone a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I should probably say first that I've worked nearly all of my 20 plus year career in technology in the not-for-profit sector. And the last 12 years of those have been uh, doing senior tech roles in two world-class arts organizations. Uh, so a particular subset of uh, the charity world. Uh, that's the National Theatre and more recently uh, where I've been for the last four years, the Royal Opera House. That's actually changed very recently though. And I, I've just moved into the startup world and I'm doing two things there. I'm, I'm working with a great team. Uh, at Health Unlocked, who are uh, building the world's largest patient social network to help improve health outcomes uh, here in the UK and around the world. And I'm also developing my own startup business, which uh, is going to gamify helping people and businesses to reduce their impact on the environment. So uh, quite a change, quite a new set of challenges, but one that I'm really looking forward to. And that's uh, a change that's uh, just happened for me in the last month, in fact. Well, sounds like you're going to be super busy. Most people have to think about doing one startup. The fact that you're going to be juggling two, how are you meet? So, okay, let, let's, let's get started on that because this is really interesting podcast for me because I love the concept of it because today I'm going to be talking with and learning from someone who sits on the other side of the table in sales engagements. I'm going to be, and we're talking with someone about sales who's actually an executive, a decision maker, a business leader whose job involves buying from salespeople and, and you've done that for, for an awful long time now. So uh, to, to some of the, the listeners, this may sound strange, even confusing talking to a buyer about selling. But, but actually, the smartest salespeople are becoming much more buyer-centric. They take the time to understand the buyer's perspective and, and by doing so, are much better positioned to succeed. So, Joe, let, let's start by, tell me a little bit about the types of project purchases that you've been involved with. Sure. So, um, over my career, it's, it's really covered a pretty broad spectrum of tech and digital procurement. And that's been both as part of um, the run rate expenditure for you know, essentially running the current infrastructure and services for the organizations I've been uh, part of, but also um, as part of larger business change programs. Um, so to give one example there, both the National Theatre and the Royal Opera House, I was responsible for IT procurement work streams within two pretty large scale multi-year building projects. More, more recently, the Open Up project, which was reimagining the experience of coming to the Royal Opera House in, in Covent Garden, 50 million pounds construction project and from an IT and tech perspective that was including the procurement of things like wired and wireless network infrastructure, uh, digital signage, uh, line of business retail systems, footfall analytics because um, as the name perhaps suggests one of the things that the, the, the project overall was trying to do was to bring new people and new audiences in to uh, the Opera House. We we're also looking at some quite specialist systems behind the scenes so things like asset management software for helping to manage uh, the various assets 
that are needed for running major theatres, all the lighting gear and sound gear and stage equipment. And then we also redesigned and rebuilt our website alongside that open up building project. And that obviously involved a lot of procurement as well around consultancy, development services, as well as some SaaS solutions, things like Shopify, for example, for our retail shop. And I think the interesting thing about working somewhere like the Opera House or, or indeed the National Theatre is that it has a pretty complex operating model for an organisation of its side. With the Opera House is about 1,100 full-time uh, equivalents in terms of staff and roughly about 140 to 150 million a year income. And, and so you do get to get involved in a pretty wide range of procurement activities working in, a, in a, an organisation, a great organisation like uh, the Opera House or the National Theatre. That's really interesting because I think one of the things that I liked about that summary is you've got small, medium, large projects, which is the normal day-to-day -day stuff when, when you're involved in running the sort of technology within an organization. But the thing about technology, the, the interesting thing about it most of it, it's probably the most complex buying processes. So, and, and it really sort of triggers off an interesting area for me. So my next question is one that gets discussed time and time again within the sales industry. I'm really curious to understand how these internal projects materialize because obviously buyers think of them as projects whereas we salespeople think of them as opportunities. In, in reality, are, are most projects created internally and, and then you involve salespeople or have you seen much of direct approaches from salespeople trigger the start of these projects and business cases? Sure. Well, I mean, yeah, just in my own experience, I have to say they nearly always start internally. And, you know, that's driven you know, ultimately by business need and, and aiming, of course, to you know, balance across a portfolio of investment and particular projects you might be delivering in a, in a particular financial year against the overall business plan. Um, you know, the planning cycle will, of course, vary depending on what the type and scale of the project is but you know certainly the larger scale procurement projects um, we've just touched on they'll obviously going to be uh, identified scoped uh, with a range of different stakeholders well in advance and I'm, I'm you know, taking to a, yeah, an outline business case and certainly for example the way I've tended to work in uh, in my recent roles is that's generally been part of a, a three-year strategic roadmap for technology in those organizations so it's kind of been pretty rare to be honest with you for a sales conversation or approach uh, from a salesperson to trigger a project that wasn't in some way on that you know on the on the radar on the roadmap already but I would say it has definitely happened that a sales conversation a salesperson has made me aware of a better way of solving a business problem and then that's gone on to inform the project approach and the business case. I've certainly had examples of that uh, recently, just uh, in you know, kind of uh, the last six months or so at the, at the Opera House from uh, some cybersecurity vendors, which can be a pretty challenging area to keep up to date with, unless you've got a large enough team, which uh, actually we didn't, to have dedicated cybersecurity staff. So there's definitely there's definitely an interplay between um, the sales process, but I have to say, in my experience, it, you know, it's, it's generally projects being created internally and then at the appropriate stage involving the salespeople. Well, I was a little bit worried then because I thought you were going to say it's never happened because then it's a sort of damnation of the sales industry because we know we should all be doing it and we're all taught to do it. We're trained. We invest in, in people that say they can do it. And I'd have been a bit worried if it never happened. So it's interesting though because there's almost like a perception is that customers or prospects are so busy running their own business that sometimes they can't see the wood for the trees that there are problems there that they need help identifying and solving but it sounds like the reality was is that you know you guys were pretty much on top of your business 
you could see the bottlenecks in your business happening or potentially happening in advance. And some of your team were, were already working on these things in advance. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, you know, I, I wouldn't claim that we have apps, you know, certainly thinking about my time at the Ropper House, you know, that we had a defined solution for every business problem that, that we were looking to solve. But I, I think what I try to do and certainly encourage my teams to do is, is to be out there quite early in the cycle of thinking about a particular business problem, looking at what peers are doing, looking at um, you know, what you're finding out online channels. I'm, I'm kind of increasingly finding following people on particularly Twitter is, is a really handy way of getting a sense of what technologies are emerging and might be interesting. And then I think then you're using the sales conversations to validate how you think things might work rather than coming with a completely blank piece of paper, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, so this, this whole thing is, is triggered off one of the most common questions discussed amongst salespeople is when they want, if they've got a great idea that they think is a good fit for a company, where do they start? Now, sometimes you get a lot of sales guys that they want to start down at the tech team to see if they can get sponsored up to, to people like you. The alternative way of thinking is saying, no, no, no. Go straight to the top guy and get him to sponsor down to the tech team. How do these things, how would you see them happening if it was you? you know, if I had a great business idea that could really help you, the ladder upwards takes a long time. Starting at the top and being sponsored down is going to obviously pay dividends, hopefully, a bit quicker. What would you see as being the best way? Well, you know, I can see the attraction from you know, putting myself in the salesperson's shoes of, you know, as you say, going straight to the top. The problem is, obviously, you know, even if you if you do want to make sure you're approachable on you know, LinkedIn, other platforms, people in senior tech roles, you know, senior decision makers are going to be pretty busy people and don't like to be bombarded with unsolicited sales approaches. So, yeah, that's that's a real challenge to get cut through. Certainly, though, if if someone approaches me with something which is a really interesting, innovative solution, they've actually thought about and crafted their approach, you know, more often than not, I'll certainly have the conversation. I think, though, that I would also encourage as part of that mix, I don't think it one or the other. I think both approaches are can be appropriate at different parts of the sales cycle or for uh, different propositions. I really always want to, as I said earlier, encourage people in my team at every level, you know, kind of a very hands-on technical members of the team or team managers to be thinking about what vendors they're working with, to be making sure they've got a good understanding of the markets they're working with. And if a member of my team has been speaking to a vendor, they've kind of spoken enough to feel that they want to move ahead with something they bring something to me that's it's it's not going to I'm certainly not going to look at that and think well I'm not going to give this the time of day because uh, it uh, didn't come through me good ideas and good um, potential partners can come from anywhere within your team I'm a great believer is good ideas can come from anywhere um, and have an open mind so one one more point to sort of build on this because we're always, the old days is sales guys were to, and I want to say old days, I don't mean that long ago. They're always told, oh, you've got to identify whether there's a budget for this because it's not a qualified opportunity unless there's a budget for it. But on the other hand, people say, look, if this is a compelling solution to an existing business problem, every company will find the budget from somewhere. Agree or disagree? 
I tend more towards the latter. I mean, if and but compelling has to mean there's a way of validating what the what the return on investment is going to be. And if it's you know an emerging market, that can be quite difficult because you don't have case studies to point to. And uh, then there might be other ways of proving the value. So maybe some kind of proof of value pilot, for example, to, if that's appropriate for whatever the product or service you're you're selling is. I completely understand why um, it's important for salespeople to qualify, and it's helpful for both sides, I think, that that discipline of qualifying a sales opportunity, and I always just try and be upfront about where I am in uh, a sales, in terms of our thinking about a project, if this is very early market research, we don't have a project budget absolutely nailed down, I'll tell people that, and then they can view the opportunity accordingly based on you know what their particular incentives are uh, and i understand that's going to be different for uh, for different companies interesting so i want to i mean you use the word bombarded uh, a little mm. bit earlier and, and it's a word i use when i talk about salespeople. and so building on from how this project internally starts to materialize and let's say it's from internally start with Salespeople, we're, we're all we're being bombarded with research about the, the sales industry, giving us all sorts of intriguing data to support the fact that selling and buying is now more difficult and the two go hand in hand. And one bit of research says that companies are around two thirds of the way into the buying process before they involve salespeople and they carry out extensive research. It states that it's conducted by lots of individuals different members of the buyer group beforehand who then come together to share what they've discovered. Is this familiar in your own experiences and what types of research is conducted? Yeah, no, I, I, I think that feels pretty spot on in my experience. There's a, there's a, you know, certainly for more complex uh, procurement activities, there's a lot of work that goes on and research that goes on in hand, some of it more informal than, you know, some of it actually managed as a, a distinct project stage in itself before you start talking uh, with the vendors. It's going to vary from project to project. Um, obviously, something that is that's you know, going to be particularly true of something that's more of a commodity or you're procuring a product service from a, a mature supply market. There's lots of information out there, or maybe you've already procured that kind of thing already in a previous role. Then you know, you're really going to do the research in advance, and you may only engage with the vendors when you're at the point of formally kicking off a procurement or a competitive um, quotation process. But I think then at the other end of the scale, if I'm looking to partner strategically uh, to deliver a complex business change project, whatever that might be, you know, kind of something like uh, the website redevelopment uh, I talked about at, uh, at the Opera House or um, delivery of uh, you know, a new ERP system, we're going to engage with uh, some selected vendors pretty early in, in the procurement process, and that's to help both us understand the space and you know make sure we're thinking about the project and setting up the project in the right way but also it's the start of building relationships I think on both sides so yeah and then when it comes to the kind of research there is so much that's available online uh, these days that's that's clearly the first port of call but uh, I would also say that certainly I find it incredibly helpful and my my teams also find it incredibly helpful to talk to peer organizations there's very strong networks in in the charity world particularly I, I know that's true in in lots of sectors that really helps to start to identify some potential vendors you know what the experiences of other organizations similar organizations have been with those vendors I personally have found, as time goes on, really, analyst reports uh, less helpful just because mm -hmm. 
you know there's just a lot of this information is in the public domain so it, it it's um it's been less and less the case that i felt that it's justified to um to shell out really for uh, for the analyst report and then depending on where you are in thinking about a project you know going independent or at least semi-independent conference rather than one that's just led by a particular vendor in a particular space can be a good way of hitting a lot of potential vendors quite quickly and, and getting a, a good bead on who's out there and, and what their propositions are. Well, I'm glad you sort of confirmed what we're all saying is happening. You know, there was a lot of scepticism about it. There's two thirds of the way through before they involve a salesperson. But but you're right, the, the amount of data uh, available is, is incredible. And the importance of referrals or uh, experiences from, from other organizations you know, we're aware of that. And I don't think there's enough emphasis on, on trying to manage that by salespeople today. But okay, so building on from that and, and going back to this bombarding as well, it's one of the things is that you're doing this research yourself and accessing information that's readily available. And what amazes me today is how much sales and marketing content is being produced. And most of it is contrived and biased towards their product or service. And salespeople throw so much of the information and content in what whatever form it might be. But we're told about two thirds of it is never read. So what are your thoughts on the usefulness of the information that you're getting from salespeople and companies? Well, it's, I think it's that I, I, I'm going to forget who the quote is from. It's from a, I think a famous kind of uh, kind of madman era uh, marketer, isn't it? But you know, uh, you know, fifty percent of all marketing is uh, is wasted. I just don't know which fifty percent. Perhaps some of the listeners will be able to remember who, who who said that. But I mean, I think unfortunately, from from the you know the salespeople point of view, that's basically true. You know, there's there's a lot of uh, irrelevant information or you know information which is is just very clearly just very biased we're not i'm certainly not going to pay a lot of attention to that and it and it does i think hurt your trust in in that vendor i think conversely if a vendor you know has some really in-depth and relevant information available I, I think it's a pretty reliable indicator that they will be good to work with based with the sales process and then actually in delivering the product or service you're interested in buying but you're always going to weigh up whatever the sales content is whether it's a case study or you know kind of toolkits as you know kind of uh, you see a lot of that particularly in the tech space to try and help solve people's problems in understanding uh, what, what they actually need to buy you're always going to weigh up that content critically you're going to compare it with other sources I think I'd say again the thing that I probably personally find most useful are customer case studies that really go into detail about the business problem being addressed and the real world results that they, they, they achieved. And at the level of a senior decision maker, you're there to make sure you're buying technology to solve business problems. So marketing information that cuts to that, I pay attention to. Other members of my team, obviously they're gonna focus more on other things. They're gonna to want to understand technical specs. That's all important. And I guess just 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 reflecting on uh, one of the big changes, obviously, in uh, the technology industry, particularly the software side, in the last 10, 15 years, as we move to software as a service, yeah, clearly the focus really has got to be about supporting onboarding decision makers and other members of a buying team for a free trial, because actually trying out the software you're interested in buying is, is worth a thousand uh, glossy marketing brochures. Everything you're saying is sort of confirming, I suppose, our thoughts, but never truly been validated. And case studies totally get it. 
it sounds to me like a lot of effort by marketing and a lot of effort by salespeople is wasted effort. And going back to your Mad Men quote as well, we need to up our game. We need to give stuff that helps you rather than being positioned to help us. Because if we're helping you, we're building that trust. And use that word earlier on, the wrong content, the wrong approach, it sort of dilutes trust. If we're giving something that you can clearly see is targeted towards helping you achieve an internal goal, objective, task, job, whatever it might be, is a step in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. So a sales guy finally gets in front of you. He's earned the right to be talking to you as the CTO. And a key and important part for anyone sales is supposed to be the discovery questions and needs identification. But once again, the sales guy gets in front, he's ready to spew out some sort of Spanish inquisition that is, once again, it's biased and contrived towards their offering. So most of the time, I'm not sure how effective salespeople are in these situations. What are your thoughts that when you've had meetings in the past with salespeople, what are your thoughts on the way you've been questioned by them? And have they sort of predominantly been self-serving have the, their types of questioning been helpful to you to get you to, to consider different perspectives? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's pretty easy to spot uh, when a salesperson is, is kind of just following a script. And, and look, while you know, I understand why those uh, approaches are, are there, you need to have consistency across particularly you know, large sales operations. And, and you know, it just helps in that, that whole process of qualifying the, the opportunity. I think it can be pretty frustrating from the point of view of of, uh, of the buyer if it just feels you're you know, you're not really being listened to. The person almost feels a bit robotic in terms of ticking off their points, um, and, and they're not either allowed to, or, or perhaps they may not be quite yet experienced enough yet as a salesperson to really apply their own judgment. And and I, I come back to you know, genuinely listening to the customer and the customer problem. I think that feels to me of a piece um, with a big trend within the technology industry, certainly in you know internal um, IT functions. Everyone obviously is talking about digital transformation in, in every sector. And for me, the thing that's at the heart of digital transformation is being customer centric. And I think that same perspective is what you see and I've always seen from really, really great salespeople on, on top of their game. They will challenge your thinking, um, and that can be great. And that's if I have that kind of conversation with a salesperson, you'll be sure I'll remember it, and it's, it's going to be a factor in how that sales uh, process plays out. Uh, and I think another thing, though, is that really, really good salespeople will also go out of their way to make connections for you that aren't immediately about their sale or their co their company, but will help build trust. And they might say, "Well, look, we've touched on this other problem." I'm not selling you that, but have you spoken to this person? Have you heard of that? And you know, when I get that kind of conversation, that's, again, really positive. I feel that they still definitely get the information they need, but they don't make it feel self-serving, like somebody's just following a script. Is it a rare experience to get someone that, that truly helps you? I would have to say it's not the majority of the conversations I have. Um, so I think it's an area where there's room for improvement. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, it, I'm not surprised. Uh, um, and, and I think on that point, I think about, look, I, I started selling a long, long time ago. For the vast majority of the career, selling was about 
personality. It was about relationships. It was about, you know, different stuff. Now, it sounds to me like if someone's really going to be uh, effective with you, they better be a subject matter expert. Yeah, I think, you know, you need to have deep knowledge of, you know, obviously, your your solution, your product, your service, but it, how it applies to the markets you're selling into. And I think it's not to say, you know, you, you, you don't want to um, have a good relationship with uh, a salesperson and then ongoing through the, the, you know, the lifetime of that, that sales relationship, but it, it needs to be backed up with substance, I think. Well, I, I'm yeah, domain and subject matter expertise. It's very different to how I used to sell, but I focus extensively on it now because that at least gives you the foundation to, to engage properly and then use your, your selling and relationship skills on top. But one without the other is no good in sales today. So yeah. um, one of the things that um, I mentioned earlier, right at the beginning, is, is that both selling and buying are more difficult. Making decisions for, for you as the prospect is difficult. They're taking longer than expected. Mm. Is, what do you think that is causing this? Sure. I mean, um, I, I guess in one sense, <laughs> certainly uh, with my you know, kind of CTO hat on, I might worry that it's become a, a, almost too easy and quick for uh, other parts of an organization to, for example, buy SaaS solutions with, you know, get, get getting going with just a departmental credit card. That's the sort of so-called shadow IT problem. And, and I think that is at least in part, though, a reaction to what, what you're talking about, this um, slowing down of uh, buying processes, particularly when they're run through a, a centralized you know, procurement function and things becoming too complex and time consuming. And I think that, I mean, that's, that's probably got a, a few different root causes, but I feel part of it is, is actually a sort of slow accumulation of what I would almost call process debt, uh, kind of analogous to the the uh, uh, digital concept of technical debt within a, within a system where for good reasons at each stage, you keep adding things, an organization keeps adding things to a procurement process fundamentally because no one wants to be the person to made a mistake in a big procurement decision. So you want to manage that risk. So you keep adding in extra ways of you know, getting assurance before you actually sign on the dotted line. And um, the teams, particularly if it's a sort of centralized procurement team in a charity, they don't tend to get bigger as the process gets more heavyweight. So they get overloaded. Everything takes a lot longer than planned. And then you end up with some pretty un un unsatisfactory processes. And as I say, parts of the organization may take things in their own hand and say, well, look, I'm not going to go through the central process. I'll, I'll just go out and uh, sign up for uh, this, this uh, solution I found on the internet. So that causes some other problems. I think that what needs to happen is that uh, organizations, senior leaders need to keep revisiting their procurement processes uh, pretty pretty regularly to make sure they're still fit for purpose and that you can tailor them to the, to the level of business value and risk associated with a particular project. I guess my last thought on this is that it's not something I, I'd claim to be an expert on, but I'm, it's something I'm, I'm interested in, in um, exploring more. I think that value and outcome-based contracts may start to help here. Uh, I think it's still a pretty rare approach in IT projects. And on, on both the supplier and the buyer side, is, there's a lot of work that needs to happen to be ready for it. But I think that might get us a little bit away from you know, these really incredibly detailed RFP or ITT processes where you're, you're trying to just check you've covered every base. Whereas if you were shifting to thinking about, well, what's the business problem we're trying to solve here and how do we partner? And that also to be 
those incentives to be baked into the way you contract i think that's uh that's got a lot of um a lot to recommend it but it uh, it feels like it's quite early days for that in uh, certainly my experience in in technology procurement hmm. so i heard risk mitigation i heard overworked under resourced um based on your experience and things being added on etc so there's lots of reasons one of the other reasons that that we're told is is a big impact is the number of people that are now involved in in the decision buying process and that year on year that's supposedly increasing we were we're told now that the typical number is between six and ten but around 12 to 14 for technical projects and that decisions are made by consensus rather than the traditional decision makers is this something that that you've uh, had experience of yeah I, I think that's definitely a shift and, and by technical projects do you mean kind of any form of technology or do you mean ones that are more probably complex te technical uh, invest technology investments like you know like your yeah, erp yeah. or something yeah, yeah. Where, where they have a broad impact on the business yeah Mm, absolutely. So I think that's maybe those numbers are might be a bit lower in the charity sector just because, well, uh, as I touched on, charities, uh, even larger charities, will often have quite lean teams. Uh, so there might not be so many people to involve. But I think the, the, the general trend that you're identifying is, is definitely one that I recognize that you, you, know, you get far more uh, stakeholders involved. Uh, that's, I think, in the long run that's actually a good thing uh, particularly when you're delivering a you know complex business change project because um you're that's the start of your engagement with those stakeholders in the the overall success and delivery of that project if they feel ownership and feel that they have been part of the decision to work with supplier a or for supplier b then that can only be a good thing as you know something like an erp project obviously is going to be a certainly measured in many months potentially in many years depending on the size of the rollout so you do want to make sure you've got that stakeholder engagement right from the word go i think probably yeah i'd say you know if, if we're talking something like that it, it would easily be in the sort of uh, 10 to 12 people so yes yeah i think that is that's also contributing to slower uh, buying processes and buy cycles and is that what's the balance or the distribution of of power and influence across the typical buy team so for example Let's say, for example, you know, the execs, your, your trusted technical people are all for a solution, but you get some lower level users who aren't necessarily on board. Does that complicate or even stop a decision being made? Well, I mean, it's going to depend on the on, on, on the specifics of the of their objections. But I would personally pay quite a lot of attention if the people who are going to be day-to-day -day using a solution let's you know let's take a uh, a concrete example actually around uh, as it happens procurement systems so we uh, we did a, a procurement implementation in my time at the uh, the Royal Opera House and there was a, a final runoff between a, a couple of solutions and the fact that the solution we ended up going with was by far the favored approach from a usability perspective and that you know panel of um, end users that were involved in evaluation you know really unanimously preferred that solution for me definitely outweighed some of the the technical benefits of the other solution that we uh, that was in the mix at that point so i think more generally i also always 
want to make sure that it's uh, you know, kind of any of these projects are ultimately to deliver a business outcome. So they should be sponsored by a business stakeholder, the, the relevant director of you know whatever function in that case, that was the director of finance, if it was a HR system, director of HR, so on and so forth. And really the role that I play and that my team play is to partner internally to help people find the right solution uh, to solve that, to make sure that fits in coherently with the technology landscape within the organization. But the technology shouldn't be driving the decisions. That's my that's my sort of pretty strong view on, on that front, actually, Kevin. Interesting. So you've got this group, however big it is, depending on the size of the project. And salespeople uh, tend to be drawn to power and, and status. And they focus too much of their attention on the top. And um, logically, why? Because that's where a lot of things are materialized. Would it be your recommendation then, a sales guy, if he's going to really look to, to, to win a complex deal, they should be spreading themselves and engaging with potentially everybody who's in the buyer group, if, if that's permitted, to really understand what's important to them so they can piece together a solution that addresses all of the needs of, of all of the members of the team? I think in the ideal world, yes, and you know, obviously some procurement processes, uh, particularly kind of public sector procurement, might not uh, allow that uh, outside of you know quite controlled pitches or uh, supplier demos. I think that uh, I mean, look, uh, obviously uh, a salesperson might encounter a, a buying team where uh, it becomes pretty obvious that the way the more senior members of that team operate is is quite command and control. And in, in, in that circumstances, maybe they, they would still be better off uh, focusing their efforts uh, at that, uh, you know, the kind of key decision makers. But uh, I think I always want to make sure it's, it's a group decision, that there is consensus, there is buy-in. Um, you'll also pretty quickly see, I think, as a salesperson, who are going to be the more influential people within a, you know, if it is a larger buying team, you'll, you'll get a, a pretty quick handle if you're paying attention as to, well, who's asking kind of uh, the, the really in-depth questions, who, who are pay, people paying attention to, and, and those are probably the people you want to have, have brought into you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's this, the whole managing the buyer team and con the consensus decision-making is a real weakness in the sales area at the moment. Most sales guys, is, they get a bit of momentum or a bit of traction with one or two people, and they, they sort of ride the coattails and thinking, well, this is a reasonably important person, if I just keep feeding them, looking after them, supporting them, it's going to happen because I think they've got the power. But they miss other things and all too often deals they expected to win didn't happen because they hadn't covered all the bases. But talking about deals that didn't happen, on my, my last key question, and it is a, a really important one for salespeople anyway, the do-nothing projects, or, or um, these are mm. opportunities that never materialize. The, the amount of them that sales guys engage with, they forecast, and it ends up with a dreaded no decision outcome where the buyer team does nothing. And apparently, stats say that nearly about 50% or maybe more of all of the forecasted sales opportunities end up as do nothing. And it's an incredible uh, waste of time and money. What's your thoughts on what contributes to something not happening? Really? That, okay, that, that's, well, that's, that's, yeah. That, I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think, yeah, I'm a bit surprised to hear the figures that high. So, yeah, 50% of opportunities, that's uh, certainly wasting a lot of people's time. But yes, I, 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 yeah, clearly it can happen, and it, it has happened in my experience. I would say if, if 
my team has got to a, a formal procurement stage, it would be extremely rare for that then to lead to a, uh, you know, a kind of no decision outcome. Uh, I'm actually just trying to think back of um, any examples that I can uh, I can think of in that get in that regard. But you know, I, I think it can happen if, but well, I mean, I guess most obviously if 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 the wider business uh, priorities have have gone undergone some dramatic change uh, during the procurement process, and if it's a you know if it's a, uh, you know, a lengthy procurement process, there's there's perhaps more possibility of that happening. And what then might happen is a project's shelved, deferred. I, I think. Another thing which I've experienced, but I would put it in the, you know, we've not kicked off formal procurement, we're still in the early market research stage is we, and therefore I wouldn't personally classify that as a, you know, no decision outcome. Maybe that's sort of partly depends how the, the stats are um, created, but that early market research, a lot of that is ultimately deciding is this, is does, does this have a, a, a real business case? Is there going to be enough ROI to be worth doing? And if, we find out that's not going to be the case, you know, for whatever reason, either we just misunderstood some of uh, the costs involved in a particular product or service, then we're obviously not going to move ahead with something where it doesn't even make financial sense. But yeah, I am, I'm definitely surprised that it's as high as 50%. Yeah. Well, I think it's probably worth you trying to understand a bit more about the beast that is the salesperson. Mm. The problem is, the problem why the, the, the percentage is probably so high is sales guys are all too keen to put every suspect or glimpse of an opportunity into their opportunity pipeline because they're under pressure to have a pipeline that might be, I don't know, four times their quota or target. And they sort of plan it up with stuff that you may not see as a project internally, but sales guys just think there's a glimpse of something might be happen and then it's on their forecast. So right, I think no, a no. lot of that is down to salespeople fattening up the pipeline with stuff that isn't really a project from from the buyer's perspective sure well that makes a lot more sense than measuring it in in that in that on, way on the no decision outcome though and sometimes they say that no decision outcome comes because the buyer team isn't aligned but it sounds to me like in your experience that somehow you bring people together if it's a formalized rfp it's a if it's a project that really needs to happen to to benefit the business then that an outcome will be made, a decision will be made ultimately in most cases. In, 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 in certainly when you're at a formal stage in, in uh, yeah, as I said, I'm certainly thinking of an example where uh, that hasn't been the case. Um, I think that in terms of alignment, that can be about, you know, balancing priorities. So, you know, um, can be an issue, I suppose, for which I, I, I have encountered personally where the business priorities have shifted and, and that that's perhaps caused us to defer something that in our minds isn't yet a project and you know we've had some early conversations exploratory conversations that's pushed things back so yeah I, I guess there's a bit of that but fundamentally when we're into a formal process it's it's generally going to result in a decision Brilliant. Well, Joe, it's been an absolute pleasure. You, you've actually validated some of my thinking, but I've also learned some stuff from hearing you. And, and the more I sort of jump onto the buyer side, the better it, I think I'm becoming at being able to do my job. So thank you very much for that. And before you go, Joe, how can our listeners find or get in touch with you? Sure. Um, so I'm at Joe McFadden on Twitter, if uh, you're, you're wanting to kind of get in touch that way. And pretty easy to find on, on LinkedIn as well. So uh, if you want to get in touch, either of those two channels will probably be best. 
Brilliant. Thank you, Joe. And thank you, everybody, for listening.